What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Today, we're chatting with Claire Coder, the founder of AntFlow. AntFlow is a, a tampon company. When Claire started when she was 19 years old, after dropping out of college, um, she made the decision that you know she just wanted to start a company and she wanted to to basically start this for menstrual equality for, for women so they'd be able to have a, a organic and, and sustainable tampon as a resource when they're at work or they're at school. Um, so we go over a lot of um, legislation stuff. We go over a lot of her decision at 19 to drop out of college and start start this company you know so for as a man you know pardon my ignorance on a lot of this you know so I really I really try to let her talk a lot about it because you know I just don't know that much <laughs> about uh, the tampon industry and what's out there for women this gives a great insight in into that sector and a little bit more understanding of, of how laws are coming out that are going to be benefiting women and just a lot of the ins and outs of a founder that that started a company you know because she had a you know had her period at a really awkward time right and, and she didn't have the comfort that she needed around her and she just didn't want other women to feel that way so it's a really it's a really fascinating conversation i learned a ton i uh, hope you do as well all right have a good one bye what is ant flow and how did it get started so uh, at Onflow, um, I originally started the company after getting my period unexpectedly without the supplies I needed. I was at an event. I was in college at the time. I was 18. And there I was without a tampon and pad. And I remember sitting on the toilet and thinking, wow, if toilet paper is offered for free in public bathrooms, why aren't tampons and pads? Because both of those paper products respond to natural, bod natural bodily functions. And so that was my, as some people say, my uh, my inspiration moment behind what is now known as Aunt Flow. Uh, three years later from that terrible toilet scenario, our company now, we stock over 300 business and school bathrooms with our 100% organic cotton tampons and pads. So what that looks like is just like businesses purchase toilet paper and paper towels for their bathrooms, um, for their employees, students, and guests. They also purchase Aunt Flow's 100% organic cotton tampons and pads to offer in the bathrooms at no cost to their students uh, and guests and employees. So uh, it's been quite a journey, but that's what we do, and that's how it started. And you were so 19 when you decided to quit your job and take the leap and take the journey. So how, how was that process? You know, being so young, you can be not even a good way, right? I mean, you can kind of have this bright eyed future where you could just kind of jump into things. Um, so it was kind of an advantage, I think, starting so young. So just take us through that process of, of being 19 and being like, you know what, I'm just going to start this. Yeah, well, I was actually 18 with no job. And <laughs> college. Uh, so um, I, I was living in Ohio and I was at the Ohio State University. It was my first semester there. I was studying comparative religion and I had never loved higher education. I didn't think that it was for me, but growing up in uh, Ohio, the standard question after high school is where are you going to college? It was never, what are you doing after high school? And so in my, you know, in my town, like the only way to be successful is to get a college degree. And so I was shipped off to the Ohio State University. And while I was there, I just wasn't loving it. I didn't like drinking. I didn't like football. And like, what else do you do at a 
State School at The Ohio State University. It sure as hell as it learned. And I was, so while I was at the university, I did start integrating myself in the greater Columbus universe, or Columbus City. And that, that's, of course, when I got my period unexpectedly, yada, yada. And I remember thinking at the end, uh, after I got that, the idea that it was enough of a reason for me to drop out of university. I didn't love the time that I was having there. And I knew that I wanted more for myself and I wanted to constantly be improving. Um, and I knew that that was not college for me. And so I, <laughs> I promptly went to my guidance counselor the weekend after this happened at Ohio State. And I told her, you know, I'm going to drop out of college. <laughs> and she was like, don't you want to take a leave of absence? Uh, and I was like, nope, I'm leaving. Bye. <laughs> uh, didn't tell my parents, didn't really tell anyone. I just signed the lease for an apartment in the short north, which is, you know, like the downtown of Columbus. And I moved all my stuff. And then when my parents came to get me for winter break, I had them meet me at a restaurant instead of my dorm because mm-hmm. I wasn't living in my dorm anymore. <laughs> And I broke the news to them of, you know, I'm not going back to college. Um, My mom started crying. My dad started yelling. I never actually ate lunch that day because it was such a traumatic experience. (laughs) Um, And that started my personal journey of growing up really fast. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom and dad were not supportive of this decision. Um, I had not really lived on my own before. And meanwhile, I was also trying to start this company. And so frankly, that that was in 2015. So frankly, 2015 and 2016 were a lot of Claire figuring out my (laughs) uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and figuring out my basic needs. I worked a variety of waitressing jobs to pay my rent. I started nude modeling for picture drawing classes to pay my rent. I was doing all these oddball jobs. And I was also working at a digital marketing company. And I was doing all these different things. It finally got to a point where I was able to steady out my lifestyle, steady out paying rent, steady out adulting, as they say. Um, And then in 2018, that was really where um, Aunt Flo blossomed. And it it wasn't until, or it was 2015 to 2018 that I was figuring things out, testing manufacturers, organizing my thoughts. And then it wasn't until 2018 where the company really started to blossom. And did did it blossom? What what would you give the blossoming to? Was it that you started to go to companies more than just trying to sell online? Or was it just you and the team getting out there? Was it social media? How did how did I guess you feel you feel good about the company, you know, early in, in 2018, when you started to see things actually work? Yeah, yeah. So 2015 through like 2017 was a was a lot of Claire just trying to figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a solo founder, uh, and I didn't really have a team because I wasn't taking a salary and I couldn't pay anybody. Uh, and being in Ohio, I didn't really understand the whole sweat equity dealio. Um, so I just did it all. Of course, that take took a mental toll and a physical toll. And there's only so much you can do uh, in a 24 hour day. Mm-hmm. And so I also want to take a step back and say that when I was first starting Oxflow, we did only sell direct to consumer. And now as a company, we only sell to businesses. So you, so, um, you know, an individual, we're not the best product for an individual. There's tons of other subscription boxes for tampons and pads that are better for um, that than what we do. We're primarily for businesses. But when I was first starting, we were in that consumer market and I, we were getting some traction, but it wasn't until we fully transitioned to B2B sales. And also until I figured out manufacturing, I had mm-hmm. tried and aired a lot. Um, and it was really in 2018 where I hired on and 
who is now our director of sales. And she really took a lot of the load off of me. She was my first real full-time employee. And that was when we were able to grow and blossom together. Well, what's the, the one thing about tampons is that what is organic in the tampon realm, organic versus everything you see on your shelf? Uh, you know, as a woman that walks in, they're just going to buy a tampon, right? That they, they've sort of been buying since they were super young, right? So what, what is the difference between 100% cotton and the stuff that you, you see on the shelves normally? Yeah, yeah. So really interesting. Now, um, more companies are starting to disclose the ingredients used to make their mm-hmm. tampons and pads. Um, and what's been found is that many um, larger brand companies that you see on the shelves, their products are made with rayon, uh, synthetic fibers, perfumes are added. And, and when you think about your body, the vagina is actually one of the most absorbent parts of your body. And if you're going to if you're going to treat yourself to organic strawberries, mm-hmm. why would you be putting perfume in your mm-hmm. vagina? Like it really just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so yeah, it's a great point. When I was starting the company, I really wanted to make sure that we delivered a quality product at a at a great price. Um, there are other companies on the market that do offer 100% organic cotton products, but they aren't for the masses. And what I always wanted to do is make sure that we could have a quality product for the general population, because it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you should have access to quality products that are going inside of your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty key. I would, I would imagine that uh, a lot of women are probably shocked to to kind of see what they've been putting in their body for a while, you know, and, and to have, you know, a healthy alternative um, is something that every sector of the business of, of business now from any product is is starting to create. And that's great because I think that's that's due to founders like you and then also educated consumers wanting that. Um, so I think hopefully we'll see we'll see a lot more you know people take care of of their bodies from you know the non traditional ways they haven't thought about before. The one thing I wanted to go back to was manufacturing. So you know being a really young entrepreneur, <laughs> a hard thing to do is get into the manufacturing game. Whether you're doing anything causes that causes production and a supply chain. So what was that learning process like of actually getting the product made? the way you wanted it. Yeah. So I often say, if I don't know how to do something, which is very frequently, I don't know how to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I don't know how to do something, I always just Google it. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Start to Google to figure out manufacturing. Um, So I, you know, I found sites like Alibaba and, uh, you know, these bizarro manufacturers Mm -hmm. all across the world. Um, And I would honestly just call on them. And just like you're pitching to investors or you're pitching your business idea to somebody that you're going to try to convince to buy your product or something, you have to share the vision with these manufacturers. And as you know, like, I mean, we work with the third largest manufacturer for tampons and pads in the world right now. And we're like a nobody to them in terms right. of their profit line, right? Like we don't buy really all that much product compared to any of the other companies that are purchasing from them, but they bought into the vision and they bought into the brand and the fact that we are doing something truly different in the industry. And so that's how we, I was able to build these relationships with manufacturers. Yeah, I've, I've talked to several people in, you know, whether it's the fashion industry or, or another type of product, and they went through the same thing is that they are 
you know, really low on the totem pole when it comes to, to getting manufacturing by really, really good manufacturing centers. You know, they're the smallest one there, right? But how they got there was not by having massive orders, right? It was about telling their story of, look, this is what I want to do. This is the cause that we're trying to, or the problem that we're trying to solve. And it's always resonated with uh, the production companies. Uh, so it, it, it's really cool and neat to see you know, even these big sort of manufacturing people, you know, take a look at something and they also resonate with it. So if they if they sort of get on board, it's kind of a first win, you know, then you can move on to, to B2B and, and then B2C sales. The one thing you guys had originally was, you know, the one for one model for on the consumer side of things. So since since that's no longer the case, has the one for one model give back model changed or has it gone away? So when I started on flow, my entire mission was to ensure everyone has access to menstrual products. Um, and that still is true to this day. Uh, because we are selling our products wholesale to businesses and to facilities, instead of that one for one model, it was more effective for us to do buy 10, donate one. And that, that decision is really a volume decision. If you look back at, you know, when we were direct to consumer, the one for one model made sense because we were selling direct to consumer. But now we're all about volume. Like we, we sell millions upon millions of tampons a year. Um, and so our give back is tremendously more um, just because we are more of a volume business because we work with uh, other large businesses to stock their facilities. So when we say at Aunt Flow, people helping people, period, that's still <laughs> one of our core values. That's one of our mission statements. Um, and we live that every single day, every time we make a sale, um, because for every 10 tampons and pads we sell, we donate one to a menstruator in need. What, is that, what does that look like? Is that donating to homeless shelters, domestic shelters? Is it yeah, yeah. overseas? So we, we only donate in the U.S., um, and that's primarily because we know that we are most effective here and our products are most sustainable and effective in the United States. Um, and we partnered with an organization uh, called period.org. You can check them out. They're amazing. Also founded by a young, a young woman. Her name is Nadia. We're, at the time when we started, we were both the same age. She was 19 and I was 19 as well. So beautiful story. Um, nice. Her organization also works to ensure everyone has access to menstrual products. They are a nonprofit. So we donate products to period.org who then distributes the mm. um, to organizations across the United States. Nice. So they are more on the lobbying effort, trying to get bills passed that, you know, allowed tampons to be covered by health insurance or covered by WIC and, and food stamps, things like that. Yeah. So they do do some lobbying and um, work from the legislative side, uh, but their primary competency is they really do collect donations, run period parties, run some menstrual hygiene drives, um, and then distribute those products to people in need. When you got deep into the weeds of, of this stuff, did you look at, you know, our laws and, and scratch your head a little bit? And did you kind of look into how you know, you can personally help or how the company can help in getting more, for lack of a ter better term, rights for, for women in the workplace where it's legal that companies have to have this stuff there. So legislation has always been very interesting. I always said, <laughs> I'm going to be an entrepreneur because let's, uh, yeah, politics moves too slow. Um, and I still stand by that. Like, <laughs> the fact that, I mean, legislation now has worked in our favor, but when we were starting, I mean, businesses weren't required to offer menstrual products. Schools weren't required, but they were doing that 
because um, we have clear, tangible data that demonstrates that by offering free menstrual products in a place of work, it can reduce number of lost work hours from women going to the store or going home when they get their period unexpectedly. It can increase employee satisfaction. And then from a school perspective, um, for middle schools and high schools, we've actually reported attendance increases amongst young girls by 2.4%, which is absolutely wild Mm -hmm. and exciting. So we really lean on that data. But from a legislative side, in 2018, three states did pass legislation requiring middle schools and high schools to offer free menstrual products in their bathrooms. Those states are California, Illinois, and New York. So from a legislative standpoint, yes, there has been a lot of movement to ensure that more people do have access to tampons and pads. Um, but also at the same time, I mean, if you look to the data, this is really a no-brainer. It's basically, it's also a bipartisan issue. At the end of the day, it's about right. making sure that more girls attend school. And if nobody supports that, then that's like ridiculous. That's really kind of where we stand. We don't necessarily lobby. Uh, we do work with some legislators to help them understand where the budget um, or how it impacts budget, how to plan for it, what it looks like, with the ways to write the legislation. So we are active there. But from a lobbying standpoint, we really don't do that much. We have more impact just by going directly to the school. So that is one thing that you do. You guys will meet with schools like you meet with companies? Yeah, yeah. So about 50% of our business is selling to middle schools, high schools, and universities. So we stock um, universities ranging from Kent State, Penn State. Uh, We stock community college. Ohio State? <laughs> uh, we do stock Ohio University. We do stock a variety of schools in Ohio. Um, ironically, uh, I will call Ohio State out. Um, they did not select us as a supplier, even though we're the only company or that we, I, my entire team graduated from the Ohio State University and we offered to price match any products that went into their building. So funny. Oh. Very funny that they are not a customer of ours, but maybe one day, maybe, <laughs> maybe one, one day, day. Yeah. no holding out. Maybe, maybe you need to take uh, three credit hours and then they will, they will buy from you, I guess. I have paid them so much money. <laughs> yeah. It's probably not walk in with any scholarships because I was dumb as a bat. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I have already paid them so much money um, and my team collectively has paid them well over $150,000. Oh so man. I think that it's about time, uh, they start looking up our new suppliers for <laughs> <and> pads, <Graham. laughs> I agree. I agree. We'll uh we when this is done, we'll tag them on a bunch of this and, and hopefully uh perfect, hopefully perfect. <laughs> they, actually, they they still use my photo on some of their uh on some of their new recruiting. Uh, Are you serious? Yeah, like I'm, I was at freshman orientation and I'm like doing some like stupid dance move thing and my photo is on their uh, freshman orientation stuff. I'm like, yo, if you're gonna use my photo, at least buy my tampon, come on. So now, so you've been in business now, what, three years? Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. So from the time that I left university to now, it has been three years. Um, I, I really like to think about 2018 is our real starting year. That's when I found our quote-unquote product market fit. I went full-time with the company. But if we really think about how long I've been thinking about Outflow and <laughs> hustling on it, it has been three years. So during those years, what are some of the things that you have learned, good or bad? And what are some of the, the obstacles you've faced and the adversity and things that you've overcame? And you know, just some tips for people perhaps that want to get started, um, that we're in the same position you are? Oh, entrepreneurship. And I, I, I like to talk about it as an emotional spectrum. So I, I truly believe that people that have a job that's nine to five, their wins are, are just so much 
smaller than the wins that I feel as an entrepreneur. And the lows are so much smaller than I feel as an entrepreneur. <laughs> so I like to describe my emotional range as like a giant rainbow, whereas like a standard human's emotional range is maybe like a fifth of that size. So so my, my highs are so euphoric and my lows can be absolutely devastating. And that's partially because I'm putting myself in these very difficult places and very high, high risk situations. Like I'm not just supporting myself and my family. I'm now supporting myself and my entire company and my entire team and my investors. So if I fail and the company fails, it's not just, not just a me thing anymore. And so I will say it is emotionally exhausting, uh, but also, absolutely rewarding so in terms of lowest lows I mean there are when I was first starting the company many nights that I was on the ground crying and sobbing and wondering if I should have just gotten my college degree and like moved on in life but now like you know three years later I have felt some wild highs and a lot of those highs revolve around my my team and the people that I'm working with and the impact that we've been able to create as a company and when we get messages on Instagram when people say, Claire, I got my period without the supplies I needed, but Aunt Flo was in the bathroom and it literally saved my day. Like that is why I run this company and still do what I love and love what I do every single day. So when I think about entrepreneurship and if someone is considering running a business, first and foremost, whenever I speak to college students, oftentimes they share with me that they are not starting a business for one of two reasons. One, fear. And two, they don't feel like they're educated enough. I was actually just speaking with um, 22, uh, 22 people at, that were studying at Princeton University. And these Princeton almost graduates said, well, I need to get my first job because I just don't feel educated enough to start my business. And that's also, I think, rooted out of fear and this mentality of like, oh, well, I need to know more to be able to do more. And frankly, I truly believe that I am in the best mental state of being a founder when I don't know much. Because the more I know, the scarier entrepreneurship is. And the more I know, the less creative I can be. And I think that truly rings true in really any industry. Um, the less you're taught how to think, the more you are able to create and to test boundaries and to try new things. So I think that that's really critical to remember. And then in terms of not starting a business out of fear, oh my God, honey, if you're fearful of starting a business, definitely don't do it because like, Starting is like the least scary part. It's continuing and crying mm -hmm. on the floor and dedicating all of your savings to the company. That's fucking scary. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, starting is the easiest part, frankly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. It's scary. You're 100% right. You're 100% right. Starting is the easiest. The hard part is the day-to-day, -day, the month-to-month, -month, the year-to-year. -year. <laughs> so when nothing seems to be going right, the, you know, the every single, um, you know, minor thing that happens to go wrong before 9 a.m. on a Monday. <laughs> those, are, those are the things that I, I think really test an entrepreneur and weed out the ones that just were doing it because they thought entrepreneurship sounded cool. Right. And that's also a that's also a bad reason to, to get into it as well. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. When these students were like, yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur because I think it's cool. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
they probably will not succeed though. So, because <laughs> it will, the marketplace will chew you up and eat you alive if you're not in it a hundred percent. If you're just in it to to be cool and lackadaisical, it will eat you up, chew you out, and you will be you will be done. You you will be it will just crush you. One, one one thing to go back to was you said to to please your your um your employees, you know the people around you and your investors. Can you go back to a little bit about funding and how you went about that situation? Yeah, yeah. So at the end of 2018, we raised $1.5 million to grow the company. Uh, And we raised that from funds and angel investors. And it was at the end of 2018 when um, I really felt comfortable taking money because I the company was now in a position where uh, we had some general traction. We had around 250 enterprise customers. I felt comfortable with knowing where to put that $1.5 million and how I was going to activate and use that money to be able to show a return. Um, whereas prior to that, I really had no idea how to use money. And I was I would rather play with my own money and make a mess of it than play with other people's money and make a mess of it. Um, you know, if you go to Silicon Valley, there's a different mentality around that. Right. But in my mentality, I just wanted to make mistakes on my own before I brought in other people. And so at the end of 2018, I did go out to raise $1.5 million. And actually, if you want to you see what that journey was like on my LinkedIn, I'm just Claire Coder on LinkedIn, uh, I, I cataloged the whole process in a CRM. So I knew how many meetings I took, how many no's I got, how long it took, how many follow-up emails, um, all of those all of those details are outlined. So if you are thinking about raising money for your company, check it out. Raising money was not easy. It was actually extremely deflating because especially for early stage companies, when investors are handing you checks, it's because they believe in you as the founder. And when they're saying no, it's probably because they don't believe in you as the founder. And so, um, you know, for, for six months, I would go to these meetings and just get railed by investors. <laughs> I'm like, why I wasn't smart enough, why I wasn't old enough, why I wasn't good enough, why I didn't do things right. And that challenged me in a whole new way to think critically and reanalyze myself as a founder to explore how I could be better. Um, So yes, the fundraising process was uh, a wild one. Um, And I'm excited to be done at least for the next 12 months. (laughs) (laughs) How how long did it take that process? Um, We're going to link, I'm going to link for sure, link to your uh, your LinkedIn uh, journey because I think that's a really interesting way to do it. But what was the time frame from when? Okay, we need to raise money to actually going out and actually doing that. It's hard to really pinpoint how long it took because I I could say that it took three years because mm-hmm. when I was first starting com- yeah. my company, I was connecting with people that ultimately became my investors three years later. And a mm-hmm. lot of um, a lot of pre-seed investments and seed investments are based on relationships and based on the people that I had originally connected with when I was starting. Um, and then when I did go out, quote unquote, on the road to fundraise, um, reaching out to people that I had built relationships with was a lot easier. So, I mean, I, one could say I've been fundraising my whole life, but in terms of the actual like, okay, I'm going to really dedicate time. I'm going to build the CRM. I'm going to do some cold outreach to investors as well. From time of originally starting to time of closing, it was between four to six months. Going back to something you said a little bit earlier, how has your parents responded now that you've kind of taken this you know, journey over the last few years and done some really valuable things for people's lives and impacted a lot of people's lives have they changed a little bit on your decision and and are they 
are they supportive of the company? Yeah, yeah. So super thankful. My parents came around. I actually came to learn that my dad never even graduated from college. So that's funny. But uh, yeah, I, I think when I was leaving university, it was definitely a shock to them. I had always been a quote unquote grade A student, graduated high top of my class. And I, I was going down that standard track. And so to shift the track and literally leave college to talk about tampons just didn't didn't really resonate with them. Um, but <laughs> it's a different now, path. Now three years later, um, I mean, my dad, I call him a flow bro. I call <laughs> all of our guys, even like you, Grant, people that support Aunt Flow but might not have their period. Sure. Love it. Uh, Love it. My mom, my mom is an art therapist. And so she works with a lot of folks that um, don't have all of the means to be able to purchase their own products. So she's been, she's been really supportive in the community outreach that we do as a company as well.